If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. From lamb's blood transfused into human veins, to tooth replacements and new noses crafted from forearm skin, the story of transplant surgery is full of surprises. I spoke to Paul Craddock, the author of a new book on the subject, Spare Parts, to find out more. Please be aware that our conversation includes details of some fairly grisly medical procedures and also references to animal cruelty. So Spare Parts offers a surprising history of transplant surgery. And I think it's fair to say that some of the stories in this book are indeed very surprising. So how far back can we trace this story? How far back does the practice of transplanting go? Well, first, thanks for having me, Ellie. It's lovely um, to be on. Um, well, that was the first major surprise for me, actually, was how far back transplant surgery goes. Because we, we, we think about it as a 20th century invention. Mm. We think about it in terms of maybe a race to transplant the human heart, Christian Bernard in the 1960s, 1967. And that's a very, very strong narrative. And it's strong for, well, for many reasons. One, it's, it's one of those really arresting post-war stories of um, very intelligent macho men, which is sort of going out of fashion now, thankfully. Mm-hmm. Um, but also it's because in the 60s, that was the time when um, surgeons and doctors and hospitals themselves started to get savvy about media and started to curate mm-hmm. their own image. And um, so... When you first come to the subject of transplant, your views about it are sort of culturally preset, as it were. Organ transplants go back, you can say, to the turn of the 20th century. Um, And I'm sure we'll talk about that in a bit. But if you think about transplant surgery as a transaction between bodies or a transaction even between two places on the same body, then you can take it back as far as ancient India. Mm. And that's to the Sushruta Samhita, which is an ancient Ayurvedic surgical text, which covered things like caesarean sections as well. And it was written in the 6th century, and things in that text were already considered traditional at that point. So, you know, transplant Mm. surgery... The first reference to it is in that text, the 6th century, but it's a likely far, far older uh, 
procedure. But what was more surprising than its age to me, even more surprising, is where it comes from. It's a direct transposition, or it seems to be a direct transposition of plant grafting. You know, when when in horticulture you take a a couple of pear trees, a couple of apple trees, and you graft one branch, uh, from a branch from one tree to um, another tree to increase its yield. It's a simple matter of basically making an incision in bark and making an incision in another piece of bark and putting those two open wounds together, then tying them, tying them off, and then over time they heal and they become one body, one tree. And it's exactly the same process with skin grafting. And in fact, when when skin grafting, well, skin grafting disappeared out of the records for many centuries and started to appear again in the in the 15th century. But in, in the 16th century, you have the story of um, Leonardo Fioravanti, who is, he uh, he was a renegade, quite a, quite a, um, an unpredictable renegade, very colorful surgeon. And he, um, he stole the secret of skin grafting from um, a family of surgeons in Tropea, in Calabria, uh, who were practicing, who'd been practicing it for generations as a, as a secret sort of process, you know, to, 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 to um, fix the noses, of, mainly, of people who have lost them in duels or in fights or through war or through syphilis. When he saw that operation being carried out, he referred to it as the agriculture of the body or the farming of men. So he wrote about it in a few different places. So it really just, um, I suppose, hammered home this relationship between human bodily processes and plant bodily processes. Mm-hmm. And that was, that was really surprising. Before we go into the the 16th century and onwards, when this story really kicks off, this is, of course, your book is a is a cultural history of transplants as much as a medical history. And one of the things I was really intrigued by was that the way that you uncovered myths about transplants and what they kind of tell us about ideas about human identity. Could you share some of those with us? Well, one of the myths that comes up most often. I'd say, is that of Jason of the Argonauts. And, I mean, most people will know the basis of that story. You know, um, Jason goes to claim the Golden Fleece. He takes the Fleece and his new wife back home to Thessaly. And when he and his um, men get there, there's a big celebration. And all the people, all the, all the sailors' fathers come out and cheer their boys and whatnot, apart from Jason's father, who's too old and feeble. Um, and Jason's upset by this, and he says um, to his new wife, could you, would you mind taking some, you've used your magic before, would you mind taking some of my life and giving it to my father? And she was touched mm-hmm. by this, um, and she said, no, I won't do that, but I'll, I'll make him young by other means. So Jason's father is carried out and placed onto this bed of herbs, and Medea performs another magic uh, trick. Uh, and part of that involves bleeding Jason's father. And as his blood trickles out, she treats it with um, some some magical herbs that she's gathered from around the, um, the, the kingdom. And then she transfuses that back into his body. 
Now, in Oxford, in the 1640s, a man called Francis Potter, who was friends with William Harvey, the man who discovered, as they say, um, blood circulation, he was thinking about this story, this Jason of the Argonauts story, and how Medea had taken um, blood and rejuvenated the blood and put it back into the body, and Jason's father was rejuvenated. He, he became um, younger, his, his, his face lost its wrinkles, his hair became black again, and he lost his stoop, etc. And he thought, well, perhaps this is possible. Mm. Perhaps this does work. So he set about trying to trying to make it work. And he was the first person to really um, think that this, this connection between blood and life could have a medical meaning. And it's a connection, of course, that is, that's, it's been in culture in, in I think probably most cultures um, for time immemorial. And he was the first person to sort of think that this connection could be um, leveraged. That idea of uh, of blood rejuvenating somebody and, and making them younger, not just making them more well, is interesting because mm. today we think of transplants purely as a way to save lives or, or really dramatically improve uh. people's quality of life. But has that always been the only motivation between, uh, behind transplants or have people thought that they might be able to be used for other means as well? Ah, well, it's only very recently that people thought that a transplant could or even should save a life. That's, that story is a, ni- a, ni- a story of 19th century blood transfusion, the first time blood was transfused between two people. Before that, transplant surgery was not used at all to save lives. It was used either as a cosmetic procedure when people, when some people criticise the surgeons of, uh, for playing God, it was used to change, well, to make people younger, as we've just discussed, but also to change their personality. So some mm. of the first blood donors were lambs. And that's because they were reputedly, because they're not, if you go near them, they actually run off, run off, don't they? But <laughs> lambs are reputedly calm and placid. Um, and it was felt that if you ha- if you had a transfusion of lamb's blood, you could calm uh, a frantic spirit. So it would be used to treat insanity. So what does that tell us about ideas about the connections between essentially like the, the essence of humanity, your personality, as it were, your soul, however you want to put it, and your body? Did people see these things as intertwined more than we might do today? I think up until... Roughly, the, of course, it's all these things. Historical things are always matters of processes. There are no, no great switch between one way of seeing things and another. But until about the 18th century, you have this idea that people were sort of immutable souls. Their soul, their essence, was just that. It was an essence, a fundamental, um, immutable, indivisible essence. So that allowed you know, things like blood transfusion to think about how essences could be transferred. And if you make if you make connections between bodies, then you break down boundaries that really shouldn't be broken down. And that's that's also where the myths come in, where you have uh, the myths of Ovid warning almost 
that if you break down these boundaries, then the world is no longer stable and you can transform it to something else. And, and people actually thought that if you had a transfusion of lamb's blood, you would transform into a sheep. You start growing wool and bleating. Now that changes around the 18th century to a more modern idea of the self, which is the self as a composition. We become mm. individuals. And that's a, through a process of gathering experiences, having experiences thrust upon us, uh, but also through buying things and acquiring things. So we start to associate ourselves with our possessions for the first time. And when it comes to transplant surgery in that period, that, that shows up in the shape of tooth transplants. If you were wealthy enough and you valued your um, smile enough, you could buy the tooth of a poor child. And this is kind of an, I think this is a kind of an analogue to the modern sort of organ trafficking. Um, leading on from that, let's talk a little bit about tooth transplants. Because I think a lot of people, when they think of transplants, they think of internal organ transplants primarily. And they'll say, tooth transplants? What? Um, what can you tell us about this, the trade in teeth and and the scientific ideas behind it? Tooth transplants have scientific origins, they have cultural origins, and they're, they're very much intermingled. The scientific origins are in, well, both in this sense of a body of spare parts, I suppose, this, this idea that body parts can be swapped. The concept of a machine body, of a body of spare parts, is part of the scientific dimension of transplanting teeth. But the main component of that science, I would say, if you, if you, can, uh, if you, if you could phrase it like that, is vitalism, this idea that there is, uh, that life is not some, not necessarily some kind of animistic principle, some kind of soul, but it, it could be, um, in the 18th century, it could be a physical principle, it could be a property, a particle. And that started out as something in the nerves. You had this dialogue around nervousness and nervous diseases. Um, but it was based on the idea that life itself was something in the nerves and it, 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 it went through your body via the nerves. A distinct modification of that theory came about with John Hunter, who's one of the most famous uh, surgeons ever, <laughs> actually, um, but certainly one of the most significant of the 18th century. His greatest contribution to the science behind the tooth transplant was to think that life was a particle inside the blood. He actually looked, he had a, a vast collection of specimens, uh, human, animal, mineral, plant, and he scoured them all for something that they all, that everything, every living creature, not for minerals, <laughs> but every living creature has in common. And also he noticed that when um, when you cut the nerves of a body part, it loses um, it loses sensation, but it doesn't lose life. It's still alive. So it, the, this vital principle couldn't be in the nerves. It has to, there's something in the blood because blood is the only thing 
or some circulating fluid is the only thing that every living thing seems to share or seemed to, to share in his experience. Uh, so he thought that if this principle is responsible for life, could you then engineer a situation where you transplant that principle from a living body to a dead part? Mm. And he, he experimented on cockerels. He uh, took a spur from one and um, transplanted it into a hen's comb. So Hunter also transplanted a human tooth in a, into a cockerel's comb. Is that correct? He did, why, yes. Why did he do that? So when Hunter was stationed as a surgeon on Belle Isle, Belle Isle, he um, he collected specimens to uh, add to his collection back in London, and he collected a lot of lizards' tails because he noticed that when um, lizards lizards lose their tails, when you can cut them off and they can grow back, so with this sort of regeneration happening, and when he got back to London, he. For reasons of, for many reasons, he fell out with his brother and he had no money. He went to work with a dentist called James Spence. And there he, he noticed the fangs of the teeth that he kept seeing being pulled out. And they looked quite like lizard's tails. And that sort of mental fidget led him to, led him to, to, to think, well, maybe humans also have this property of regeneration. And applying that to this notion of a vital principle, this idea of life itself inside mm. the blood, um, well, that led him to transplant a human tooth from, a, in, in um, quotation marks, a, a volunteer. It led him to transplant that tooth, a volunteer's tooth, into a cockerel's comb. And it didn't really work, but he, <laughs> it looked to him like it, it had formed a connection. Did tooth transplanting ever really work, or was it always a bit of an illusion? It seems to have. There are reports of it having worked, um, sometimes for a couple of years. I mean, many times it, it, of course, didn't, and sometimes the recipient would become infected. In fact, that's, um, that's why tooth transplants went out of fashion. I don't think they were officially banned, uh, and I've seen them actually in, in a dental textbook from 1919, that late. Uh, but the last one I've ever, I've ever read of, of being performed was 1838, I think it was, in Buffalo, in upstate New York. Um, but they went out of fashion around the turn of the 19th century because, not because they were um, responsible for ruining the faces of poor children, uh, but because the wealthy recipients started to get infections and syphilis and they started, some started to die. So then it sort of petered out. And even Hunter himself came, came out against the operation at that time. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. It's a sort of what we're doing now, isn't it? If we're using plant structures for their inherent vascular networks, to plug holes in human hearts and to transplant into us. That's, I, I really like the beauty of that. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, 
But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down. And learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. So you've spoken about teeth being taken from probably unwilling volunteers, poor volunteers. You've well, spoken desperate about volunteers. Desperate yeah. volunteers. Mm-hmm. You've spoken about um, animals being involved in these experiments, and there's lots of stories of decapitated dogs, mm. yeah, it's quite gory. lambs. It's quite gory. And I wanted to just ask you about the some of the ethical um issues that surgeons ran into in the history of transplant surgery or often just simply ran over and ignored oh at every stage (laughs) well from the very beginning you had this this idea of 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 playing god should you one one ethical consideration was are you playing god by changing um the face of somebody who's supposedly designed by God, are you Mm. damning them to a life of monsterhood? So that's the first one. When you get to blood transfusions, um, of course, for many ethical (laughs) dilemmas with with, um, animal experimentation in general, which um, some people came out, you know, Samuel Pepys didn't like um, animal experimentation very much. Um, Robert Boyle, he didn't mind it didn't seem to mind it at all although he he um i say i I remember saying of a book that he only ever drowned one kitten and that's that was his soft spot that was his line yeah yeah it was his line (laughs) drowning one kitten fine but he thought he looked at the second one and he thought no this is the words he used were was too much (laughs) (laughs) which i would agree with um but in, when it comes to blood transfusion, the ethical dilemma, the big one, is about well, what we've been speaking about, which is um, changing someone's soul. Mm. So one of the French um, um, people who, one of the French physicians who objected to just transfusion uh, vehemently was called um, Guillaume Lamy. I apologize for my French pronunciation. Um, 
And he felt that every animal had a kind of a, a, a particle, sort of like a vital principle, um, but but that particle contained within it the character of that person or that being. Mm-hmm. So that's where the fears of turning into a sheep <laughs> come from. That's one of the um, origins of that. But if you if you give your blood to someone else, how, are you then transferring some of your personality to them? Maybe that's mm-hmm. another question. Mm-hmm. Of course, the ethical dilemmas with um, body shopping and tooth transplants are, are quite quite clear. Really, there's a a sense of of selling selling body parts that well, one don't belong to you, and two are effectively coerced, really, from people mm-hmm. who well, from children. I think. Well, coming to this fresh, there are a lot of. I think it's fair to say grisly and often mm. quite creepy and macabre experiments that you that you chronicle as part of the the process to try and develop this science. What were some of of the most audacious that people might be surprised by? Oh god. The most audacious experiment in the history of transplant surgery. I think it's probably for me a blood transfusion that happened in the 1670s in France, um, between a madman called Antoine Morat and a sheep. And there's uh, this. Which way round was it going here? Sheep into man. Okay. <laughs> and he was. Oh, it was. It was horrible the way it's described. Uh, but they describe this sheep just in such a high state of panic and just screaming and this and a, and a butcher punching it into submission and tying it into a chair it's ho- horrible it's awful and then the same happens when they drag this madman and again he's screaming and he's making incoherent sounds and he's saying i'm not mad or, or whatever you know he's 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 really making a, a big din <laughs> as we say up north. And he um, he's tied into this chair as well. And it goes into such detail about freeing a vessel in the arm of the sheep, freeing one in the arm of the man, and connecting them with a tube, a, a silver pipe. And then this blood sort of uh, making its way from the sheep into the man. And it's, it's, it's horrible to, it's horrible to read so, so the idea in that experiment was to cure the man of his of his madness, and it seemed to work actually, um, because you can t- yes, it seemed to work. You can you can take a little bit, you can take I can take a little bit of animal blood or blood that's incompatible, not much, but you can take a bit. And let's face it, the technology is is primitive. The the um, tubes would get clogged up, not much would really make its way into the man. Some would, though, and it would be enough to make him have a fit, quite a severe fit. But at the end of that fit, he'd be too tired to act mad. So it looks like it works. And then he becomes mad again, <laughs> and he needs a second transfusion. And eventually he he died. I think it was his, um, it wasn't from transfusion he died though. It was from his wife poisoned him with arsenic. 
because because he, he was he was beating his wife and roaming around Paris naked, setting fire to things. Another of the specific uh, procedures that I wanted to ask you about was something you mentioned earlier on, uh, briefly about 16th century uh, rhinoplasties, nose jobs. Uh, because the first time that I learned how this was done, my mind was absolutely blown. So. What can you tell us about the early techniques that were used to to create new noses for people who'd lost them via uh, syphilis or maybe in jewels? Mm. Well, there were two techniques. One of them um, was an in, the Indian technique from the Sushruta Samhita, um, and that was taking skin from the forehead. So essentially, what you would do is you would you would make a a, a model of the nose, maybe out of wax, of the nose that you wanted to you know, the shape you wanted. And you would then flatten it onto the patient's forehead and cut around that mould as if it was a kind of a flap. And then you'd pull away that flap. So you'd you'd make incisions around that. Um, well, what would, yeah, it is a flap. You'd pull that away from the forehead, make incisions around the nose area, you know, where you would want it to adhere, and then you would form it over the mould. And those wounds that you connected would heal. The the Italian method, so by the, by the 16th century, it you had a, a method where you do the same thing, but with um, skin from the uh, bicep. So you would strap your arm to the top of your head, therefore leaving a flap of skin connected to your arm but yes. also connected to your face is yes. that right so you'd have to have a bridge uh, to a part of the body that had blood you know that can supply it with blood so in the indian method it's it's the bridge of the nose um and it's turned it's sort of flipped around with the italian method it's your arm very uncomfortable on the promotional page for your book there is a question which is what role did a sausage skin and an enamel bath play in making kidney transplants a reality? Because I need to know, what role did they play? Well, kidney dialysis emerged in occupied Nazi Netherlands. And it was a ma- with a man called Willem Kolf. And he, um, it's, it's a long and involved story about him, but um, I'll try to just hit the sort of main parts to get to the sausage skin as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. So Willem Kolf met up with a professor uh, called Robert Brinkman, who in a previous life um, purified fruit juices using cellophane. And cellophane was and is used as uh, sausage skin. And thinking about its qualities of, you know, its its ability to purify fruit juices, um, Kolf applied that to some of the conditions he'd seen in his hospital um, with kidney patients with kidney failure. The problem with uh, kidney um, failure is that the blood fills with urea, and it's a very, very painful process. You lose your eyesight, it's, your skin starts to unbelievably itch as the urea crystals push themselves up out of, out of your skin, trying to get rid of it any way it can. Uh, the usual it's the usual job of a kidneys to get rid of it, but if they've failed, then that's when you get these terrible consequences. And he thought that if he could purify the blood in the same way Brinkman purified fruit juices, that would mean that the kidneys could 
in, a, in effect, have a chance to restart themselves. So the first experiment he did was to fill a cellophane sausage skin with his own blood and to add a bit of urea to that blood. And then he sloshed that around in a bath of water. And he had no great hopes for this succeeding, but it turned out, actually, when he tested his blood, almost all of the urea had gone through the cellophane. So this was an effective way to clean the blood. I mean, many, many mechanical problems um, presented themselves, not least the one of clot, blood clotting, which is, you know, has been a part of the problem of moving around blood um, since, since the first, um, first time that happened in the, in the 17th century. Um, but also getting the blood back into the patient afterwards when it's been cleaned, that was a problem. Um, but this first machine that he, he created to try to get around all those problems was an assemblage of sausage skins, an enamel bath, and the frame of a shot-down German aircraft. And it's a real, for me, it's a real testament to the ingenuity, I suppose, um, that is, you know, you're forced, forced to um, embrace in desperate situations when, like when you're occupied by Nazi forces. Yeah, I think that um, if anything, this book is a testament, as you say, to ingenuity, sometimes misplaced, sometimes successful. So who were some of the other key figures that really um, thought outside the box to push transplant surgery forward? Well, one of the key figures who, and the one I am most inspired by, is Marianne Leroudier, who is, or was, uh, an, a famous French embroiderer. And she's, she's not, um, she, she probably didn't um, realise, actually, that she contributed, but I've done some, I did some original peer-reviewed research um, that has revealed uh, the potential that she has quite significantly. So... It was at the beginning of the 20th century, 1900-1901, when two major advances happened to, to bring transplant into the modern world. And this is actually the place where most people, most surgeons would think transplant surgery begins. So in 1900, because you had, first you had um, blood typing that was conceived around that time. But the, the, the other one is Something called, it's a procedure called vascular anastomosis. And that just means uh, sewing together blood vessels, basically. So if you can sew together blood vessels, you can sew organs into bodies. So transplant surgery becomes conceivable. Bypass operations become conceivable. Trauma surgery becomes, becomes conceivable. In fact, the whole field of vascular surgery arises from that. Now, the story, as it's usually told, is that a man called Alexei Carell perfected this technique in 1901 after seeing the assassination of the French president about a decade or so earlier. Now, he, he of course, he had a, a lot to do with it. <laughs> in fact, he, 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 did, he did make the innovation and he won a Nobel Prize for it as well. Um, but what... The, the part of his story that he's never never seems to be covered is that he was taught by a woman called Marianne Leroudier. Now, Marianne Leroudier is or was a very famous um, French 
embroiderer. She was responsible for the gold lace embroidery of the Paris opera curtains. Her work won awards and medals all over the world. So she's a very, very, very strange teacher for a surgeon to to go to. Uh, and, And the way that's been that's been interpreted in most history, in fact, in all of the histories that I've read, is that he was such a genius that he needed that kind of person to teach him because a normal seamstress is no good <laughs> for someone of his caliber. And I suppose, for, you know, for us, but there might be some um, something in that. But the question then arises, what could she have taught him that no one else could have taught him? So I actually did a a piece of work um, with an embroiderer called Fleur Oaks. Together, we, we reenacted a technique that Carell apparently excelled at, and that was to mm. put stitches into a cigarette paper. And a cigarette paper was used because it was flimsy. It resembled material, on a material level, it resembled an artery. It's easily terrible. So we decided to look at Le Rudier's work which you can find in a museum of tissues in Lyon, and look at Carell's exercise and to see what aspects of that exercise were represented in Leroudier's work. And it turns out that quite a lot of it is. So there are things like um, working one-handed, for instance. You have to do that inside of a body. Um, but a, a, a domestic seamstress wouldn't be able to do that. But Leroudier working on these massive curtains and copes for um, the Vatican, <laughs> you know, she would need to work one-handed. She would need, in order to manage the gold thread, she would need to have extra techniques to place that thread where she wanted it to go. Uh, so, in fact, there were quite a few different techniques that were not just to do with achieving a certain intricacy, which is what he he claimed he was, you know, very very good at, and what he was clearly good at to do with navigating these materials that an an ordinary seamstress would have no experience and no need to navigate. So these techniques, I suggest, um, are the ones that Carell might have picked up from Leroudier. So I, I really think that we hold Carell up to be this genius, this great man. In fact, he holds himself very high. In fact, he was a eugenicist and a horrible man uh, towards the end. Uh, but he holds himself up as this great man, This and he's, he's created this mythology around himself. But he doesn't recognize where those techniques come from. He doesn't recognize that they come from the, the female-dominated um, practice of, of decorative embroidery. And he doesn't recognise Marianne Leroudier as anything but a footnote in his career, someone he consulted because he was too good for anybody else. So Leroudier, for that reason, is is for me the most inspiring figure in the book. And and it's the least gory story. (laughs) In the conclusion of the book, you look at the future of transplants, which which is fascinating in itself. What do you see coming next? So when it comes to the future of, of transplant surgery... One of the most inspiring 
um, experiments, inspiring directions for me is to do with uh, bioengineering and it's to do with stem cells and and populating um, scaffolds with someone's own cells. So you don't need to have drugs for rejection and things like that. Um, one story in particular sticks out for me, and that's the story of the spinach heart. And that refers to an experiment done by, or a set of experiments done by a man called um, Dr. Joshua Gerschlag. At, he was at Worcester Polytechnic Institute. Uh, he's now at Harvard. And basically what that is, it's uh, he, he dissolves the cells of a spinach leaf in detergent. So you're left with just a collagen frame. So it's a, just sort of a white ghostly impression of a spinach leaf. And then he populated that leaf with human heart cells. And that's, that's the reason behind that is because 3D printers can't yet print um, capillaries and structures in the body that are so small. You know, they don't have the resolution yet for that. I mean, that's, uh, some people think that's maybe 10, 20 years down the line when we can print those kind of structures. But for now, we have the plant world. <laughs> and the, the, the advantage of a spinach heart, <laughs> if you will, is not to, re you can't replace the heart with a spinach leaf, but you can plug a hole with that kind of technology. And it's not, it's not found a clinical application yet. But I find that quite, quite um, lovely, actually, because he's also using now at the moment, he's using that technology to look at skin, growing skin for skin grafting, which kind of brings us around into a very, you know, very nice circle to what we were talking about before, because transplant surgery started with this connection between humans and plants and the physiological similarity and what that meant in terms of, you know, transposing processes of grafting from the plant world to the um, human world. It's a sort of what we're doing now, isn't it? If we're using plant structures for their inherent vascular networks to plug holes in human hearts and to transplant into us, that's, I, I really like the beauty of that. That was Paul Craddock. His book, Spare Parts, A Surprising History of Transplants, is on sale now, published by Fig Tree. You can find a link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Tune in tomorrow when Neil Faulkner will be speaking about his new book, Empire and Jihad. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.